Hello, everybody, and welcome to the latest episode of the Fox Nomad Podcast. I'm your host, Fox Nomad, Abu Polat. My guest today is Farhal Ahmed. He is Muslim A's Digital Marketing Coordinator. He's here to talk about what aid work is like, how you coordinate logistically when there's a disaster, how relief work is provided. We talked today specifically about Morocco, which is about a month since its devastating earthquake. We want to talk about what it was like, what the phases of recovery looks like. And I think you're going to find a really interesting episode. We talk about ways that you and I can help in relief efforts like this. And I hope you enjoy this episode with Farhal Ahmed. Thank you so much for joining the podcast. I have been really like before we were, you know, I hit record, we were talking about, you know, the, the Morocco earthquake when it happened was September 8th, right? And I looked it up. I thought it had been months and months ago. And it seems like, I mean, it's it's not even been a full month that these things drop off the, the headlines and that there's this long period of recovery ahead. Um, can you Can you talk a little bit about you know, the earthquake happens here. What is What are the next responses, for example, like an organization like Muslim Aid? Yeah, so we, we actually work in phases. So the initial phase is the emergency response. So our team goes onto the ground, sees what the initial needs are of uh, the areas that have been affected. And then from that, we then uh, ensure that we are able to uh, get those two areas and provide them with wherever the initial need is, the aid that they need, whether so for, in the case of Morocco, the initial need was food and uh, medical aid. So in first phase, we provided food. Then we went back in second phase, uh, looking into what is the next process? What is the next need? What is it that they still need? Okay, the next stage that we found out was well, they still needed more food, especially flour, because flour was one of the main components of their dietary uh, requirement and uh, on top they needed shelter equipment such as uh, mattresses and blankets and etc that unfortunately a lot of the places a lot of people did not have uh, so that was the second phase and as we build along we, we move into our uh, once we move out of the emergency phase we look into what is the next phase which is the development phase what are we going to do in order to ensure that all the needs of these communities are met to ensure that they are back into uh, how they were before and they, are, and they are thriving within their own communities. And one of the main things that we saw was shelter. Every community that you went into, they said, we need shelter. Especially what a lot of people do not realize is that the earthquake did not happen in Marrakesh. It happened in the mountains, in the epicenter was in the mountains. And although during the beginnings, there was a lot of news that all it was in the epicenter, it was in the mountains, but Marrakesh was affected. But it was not actually Marrakesh that was really affected. It was those villages that are within the mountain. The Atlas Mountain has a lot of villages within itself. These villages are very deep within the mountains. One village that we went to, uh, it, when we spoke to them, we said, why don't you leave uh, this area? It's, it's, uh, you've got a lot of your houses are destroyed. You can move. And they, and they were like, We've been here for 480 years. How can we leave uh, our home? We don't know how to get out of here. Where are we going to go? This is where we live. This is where all we know. So for a lot of these villages, they're not there for the, uh, they haven't been here for, let's say, 10 years, 20 years, 50 years. They've been there for years, hundreds and hundreds of years. And a lot of them have lost their houses 
completely shattered. I remember we went to one village and it is a lot of these houses they build on like a little sledge. So you've got one house here, then you've got another sledge, you've got another house at the bottom. So I looked up, we were walking down and I looked up and uh, the house literally half of it was destroyed and half of it wasn't. And I looked down on the other side, that house was completely destroyed. And I'm like, how did that happen? And they were like, oh, you see that mountain? There was a massive rock that came, destroyed half of this house and fell on this house completely and destroyed everything. So these are the situations that we were seeing on the ground. Um, and that's something that we really needed to look into. How can we ensure that we are providing development work for these areas? And one of the main thing was shelter. And Musamed is looking into bringing shelter, uh, unfortunately, within uh, Morocco, because it's not a disaster prone country, which is good to know, but it does not have the structure to uh, you know, support a lot of these disasters. So uh, we have to bring in these shelter tents from outside. And one, uh, something that we are looking into bring is these tents that are uh, uh, made, our uh, winterization tents. They have three layers uh, within itself. So it keeps it nice and warm. It also has metal doors in front of it, windows that are able to see through. And it has in the middle, a stove pole where uh, you can uh, put a stove in, inside the tent, which allows uh, the tent to be warm and also for the families to cook. And these are quite big tents uh, and easily a family of four to five can fit in there. Um, so these are the type of tents that we're looking to bring in uh, into Morocco and to see how we can uh, provide this into those villages as soon as possible. And it might be a silly question, but for somebody unfamiliar, how do the you know aid workers, how do you get there? I mean, do you just take a, a normal flight? And my follow-up question to that is, how do you get the supplies there? What, what, I mean, you know, how do you arrange a flight? Do you, do you have to buy those supplies separately? How, how does that yeah. work? It, it, it all depends on the country. So if we take uh, Morocco as an example, Morocco is a, a, a it's, it's not a, uh, it, it has a lot of facilities and it's able, it's quite easy access. Uh, so we were able to take flights straight into Marrakech because Marrakech wasn't affected. So the uh, flights were still going in and out. And but a lot of tourists didn't know that that uh, was the case. So at the beginning, when I took the flight there, it was literally like 30% of the flight was full. It was completely empty. I had like three seats here, I had three seats there. So the flight was completely empty. So for us to get into the country was quite easy. Um, what we usually do is once we get to the country, we beforehand we have a team that is on the ground for the locals. We build a team with our partners uh, that is from the locals that understand the local language, understand the local climate, uh, the geopolitical system, and etc. And once we have that, we go on the ground uh, and implement these projects. We may need to buy uh, if if there's uh, the facilities and uh, the country has the requirement uh, equipments and the requirement needed for these areas, we can get those internally. For example, it was easy for us to get flour and other food dietary equipments and uh, on the ground quite easily. So we were able to purchase that. What we do is it's, it's, it's as much as going to a wholesale and purchasing uh, wholesale equipment or just uh, bringing something from uh, a food market, etc and building those food packs, depending on what is available, um, or working with factories, etc. And that's in terms of what's internally. Externally, if there is stuff that is not within the country, you have to look at other avenues, whether you have to fly it in, 
whether you have to bring in two cargoes, uh, two trucks, etc. Whatever is the best form of uh, bringing the equipment into that area, we will aim to do so. So it's it's something that it, no matter what it is, no matter what the situation is, we have to get the aid there, and we aim to do it in whatever, however we can do it in the best way form. And is is there a, a, a I mean, this is my silly question again, but uh, you know, because we see on the news, we see the aid workers after a disaster. It, is there like a, a a passport category, or is there some special, you know, or just entering as if you would, you know, enter like as a tourist, for example, but then you do aid work, or is there paperwork you have to fill out? And I suppose it depends, but uh, yeah. What is what are the arrangements? Uh, look yeah, like? yeah. So it, it does depend on the country. Some countries it's as easy as just getting a flight there. For example, Morocco, it was just get a flight there, and you're you're, you're quite good to go. Uh, countries such as you know maybe like Libya, it's a lot more difficult to get into the, uh, those countries because of uh, the paperwork and the process. You can't just go in on a tourist visa. You need to have the right paperwork uh, uh, done through the government and also to enter those locations. It may be certain countries you may be able to get into the country, but you not you cannot get into the locations that are affected, and you may need uh, special passes or special uh um documents to get that through the government in order to get into those areas and help out so you have to put us uh follow those procedures quite uh regularly and ensure that uh you're fulfilling all the parts uh, for some countries while other countries it's as easy as just getting a flight there interesting and the reason i ask is because a lot of times like what we see on the news is we see the disaster and then we see people in these bright reflective jackets usually that's just what what we see but the logistics of doing all of that in a short time frame i think is important to understand because yeah you know that's the initial response even that takes some time but now we're and we, we talked about this before we hit record that you know a lot of the the international aid that comes into a place like morocco where thousands of people have died many more are displaced, homeless, you know, or affected, injured, you know, and then a week or two later, a lot of those aid groups go back home. Um, so my question is, you know, why do the groups come in for a shorter period of time, you know, and, and what happens after that? Like, what, what does the rebuilding process look like today? Yeah. For you? yeah. So, so those, those groups are, uh, mainly emergency response units. So they're quite specific in terms of uh, their job is to come, get everything, get everyone out of the rubble, find as many people and save as many people as possible and provide the initial aid. And once they've done that, then they pretty much leave straight away. The next part is NGOs and the government itself where they take on uh, the, the initial, the next stage where it is providing emergency support that, that they still may need, providing long-term support that they will need. What, what you have to understand is um, it's not just uh, physical health in terms of like shelter or food. There, there's a big psychological uh, effect that earthquakes and these disasters have on people and the psychosocial help that a lot of people need and it's in that that's part of long-term development work that some NGOs like Muslim Aid looking, are looking into doing for these areas because 
and I, I remember there was this one old lady I was speaking to and, and she just like, she was saying, oh, I, I couldn't understand initially, she was sign languaging and because uh, I, I don't speak the language. So she was kind of sign languaging to me and I kind of got the gist of what she's saying. She was saying that, oh, when I sleep, uh, I, I find it hard to sleep because I feel like it's going to shake and it's going to have an earthquake. Even myself, on the first day when I went there, because I was going to these villages and hearing so many stories, when I went back to our hotel and I was sleeping, I kid you not, I woke up thinking I was I, I was like about to fall because of an earthquake, because of that psychological effect. And, and for me, it was just hearing those stories. They lived those stories. So imagine how they would feel. Yeah, I mean, I again, I, I go back to what we see on the news and we see people after an earthquake that are, you know, they've lost their homes and it almost seems like you just sort of expect like you know like the oh everyone is is, is sad and you they talk to people but they don't really show that that the sort of the ptsd that can happen from just yeah your home just i mean i can't even imagine what, what that yeah. what that would be it, like another story would be um a lady that we we visited and uh she was uh, we we went there and it was actually a house falling down and she was wearing all white and uh, there was a tap in front of the house and she was just getting some water from that tap and as we got to the village we got out and one of our colleagues who's from there was like see that woman she she's mourning because in, in Morocco when you wear white that means that you've lost uh, someone in your family and you're, and you're mourning usually your husband or your your partner so we were like okay that's quite sad and we went afterwards to speak to her and uh, uh, we were actually in front of that house where she was getting water and she goes, you see this house? Uh, it took me and my husband 30 years to build and it was completely on the ground. And she actually lost uh, her husband that day and she lost her son and her daughter was completely injured. She herself was stuck in, in the house itself and basically the house had fallen. Uh, the husband was on the first floor, she was on the ground floor and her son was on uh, in his room. And unfortunately, when, when the house fell, uh, rocks hit her husband on the head and he was losing a lot of blood. Uh, she was uh, that un she managed to be in a position where she wasn't really hurt in terms of uh, major injuries, but her whole body was crashed. And she had luckily her phone, so she was able to call her son who was an hour away. And he actually drove for an hour and got her out of that hole but she was telling us while she was in that hole she could only hear her husband calling out for help continuously help 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 but uh, she said after a while she, she couldn't hear him anymore and she goes that's when I realized he had passed away and uh, she said when when they came out of that hole when she was taken out um, and they went to check on her son he was completely crushed uh, and she she was standing there telling us a story with, with a brave face and, and, it, and it just showed the resilience of the people uh, in Morocco and like she's telling us this story but she, she's so brave that there's not there's not a tear that's coming down she, she's holding herself that this is my story but I'm not gonna cry I'm gonna stand strong and and these are the stories of many people in these villages unfortunately and when you you know when you meet people like this in this situation um, as an aid worker, where do you begin? Is it, I mean, you know, you, that person who's probably living now in temporary shelter, um, 
I can imagine if I were in their shoes, you're not thinking about the future, right? There's so much that you've lost. But on the other side, how do you plan? Like, I mean, is the goal is, I would imagine, to rebuild everything, right? As the sort yeah. of the ideal. How do, you know, what do those steps look like? Those initial steps um, once you get somebody past yeah. that emergency phase? So it's the next stage is to do a need assessment, see who needs what. For example, you would go to a village, you would uh, do a need assessment of the amount of people in that village, how many houses have been destroyed, who needs a house, etc., etc. So you create a, a long list of a, 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 a proposal, a complete need assessment that's been done. Then a proposal is created, which is then sent to our team in the UK. And we then look in that proposal, we look at all the things that needs to be uh, done, and then we face it out in, okay, this is going to be two months, three months, six months, nine months, one year, two year. We put it in phases. Once we put it in phases, then we start uh, actioning the work with our partners, making sure that not only that the work is being done, but it's been done uh, with the best diligence, all the paperwork are being done, and we're ensuring that every single person uh, that is being helped we know and we we are accountable for those people and we are aiming we can showcase that we have helped every single person so that's a long-term phase that we work on when we go to these natural disaster zones and when we try to do long-term work there and so you're tracking every person you're saying person a b c let's say they've lost the house yeah, we have a list of every single person uh, that we help uh the amount of people in those uh households uh, what age they are, whether they're female, male, um, they, uh, how many families they may live. Some some houses they have more than one family living in there. So we have all that data that we collect, and according to that, we provide them with uh, support. So of course, these are all confidential data that we 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 don't share with public, but it is more of for ensuring that we are able to provide support to every single beneficiary. And how does at this phase, I would imagine your your calculating is a budgeting or or trying to figure yeah. out how much it's going to cost. How do the finances work? Like how how does the, the the money come in, and how do you plan to distribute it? Yeah, so then we work closely with our finance and uh, marketing team. So uh, initially, whatever uh, we have in terms of a set budget. So this is why it's so important to uh, raise money for. Uh, our global emergency and need is greatest pot. So we have different pots. So you have your need is greatest, which is basically all projects where, that we can uh, use that fund for. You have your global emergency, which we can use for our emergency projects. And you have your thematic water, uh, child sponsorship, etc. And for me, need is greatest and global emergency is one of the most important uh, pots of funding for any charity. And it's something that I always urge people to donate towards because Using these pots, we are able to quickly get funds out to these areas and provide initial support uh, because they, we are able, they are not restricted to a country or cause. We can quickly get them out and get the help that these people need as soon as possible. Then once we've got that stage short, sorted, we then go to our marketing team and our fundraising team and we say, okay, these are the projects. This is how much we need. How much of this can you think we can fundraise for and how long do you think? Then they create their plan and then we work together to streamline this and ensure that we are raising funds throughout the time period that we've allocated and at the same time 
then going out and uh, uh, implementing all the projects. And, you know, uh, this sounds depressing to say, but there are a lot of disasters around the world, a lot of problems. Unfortunately, yeah. Uh, how do you, you know, pick and choose? I mean, there must be things or, or events that maybe don't get the priority or perhaps, you know, can't be logistically done or, you know, what what is the selection process yeah. like? I don't think there's much of a selection process. It's just an emergency is an emergency and, and we 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 don't uh, say, you know, this emergency, we can't help. It's wherever we can help, we try our best to get there. But you're right, there's so many emergencies and unfortunately you're not able to get to all of them. So it, initially our uh, initial requirement is always, can we get to this area? Are we, do we have our own office in the country or can we get a partner on the ground as soon as possible to respond to this emergency? And if we are able to meet these requirements and are able to get a partner on board, because even getting a partner on board to do this, there's a lot of due diligence work, there's a lot of risk assessment, a lot of paperwork that goes on behind that. And, the, and it's, it's like, imagine a month's work being done in like a day or two. So it, it's super hectic. Our colleagues are working literally 24 hours uh, for like or 48 hours straight, um, making sure that we are getting this uh, approved. And if we are able to get them approved, then we can literally go out straight away and start implementing uh, our projects and uh, uh, helping out and providing aid to these emergency disaster prone areas. But yeah, that's that's uh, it's it's difficult to get to all these areas, unfortunately. Yeah, I, but you know, it is also amazing that there is so much aid work that does occur. You know, it, it sort of brings out the best in people in, in these in the worst of times it really cliche is very true you, you do see people when you you know yeah. you see aid workers emergency workers fly to a country they maybe have never been to they don't know where they're going and putting themselves at risk right like i mean when you go to these places you're at risk of injury because of you know the, the structures there's disease all kinds of things that you're exposed to um what is Morocco like now I mean the, the earthquake hit areas and we're now one month out uh, what does it look like on the ground so in terms of the areas that have been affected for them I think like you said it's 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 no they're not even thinking long term it's about when is the next uh, food are we going to have enough food for the next week uh, when are we going to get out to shelter home I think that there are certain things that we take so much for granted, like as simple as going to a toilet. Like they've got shelter, but where are they going to go to the toilet? It's it's things as simple as that that we take for granted that a lot of these people are thinking about right now that we wouldn't even think about. Like where am I going to have shower? Like how how am I going to uh, cook? Like these are things we we we're, we're like it doesn't even comprehend in our head when we think about emergencies. But these are the daily struggles that people are going towards. Like a female uh, uh, <clears throat> does not have the sanitary pack that she needs. She and unfortunately, she's she may be starting her menstrual cycle, and she's like, "What am I going to do?" And and these are the type of questions that are the daily questions that these people are looking to answer, and uh, they, that's what their problems are in in, in this initial stage. Yeah, and I I think you bring up a good point that we're talking. You know, it, it's 
maybe you can imagine for a day or two or three, but when we get one month, two months out, you know, the, the really that there's sort of this less glamorous kind of the grind that uh, of solutions yep. that you have to come up to to the problems. Do you, I, I mean, I guess having experience uh, with these different types of disasters, is there a, a timeline for a place like Morocco? Do, do you, do we, you know, do you look at it like, okay, we estimate in about six months, we should be here and 12 months, you know, 80% of the people are sheltered or, you know, what are the long-term plans sort of look like? So yeah, so yeah it, it does depend largely on uh, the government itself in terms of, because a lot of the government itself is looking to do a lot of work uh, within these areas. So it all depends on uh, what the plans for the government is and according to that, then we can uh, make sure that uh, then we can put our timeline as well. Okay, this is what the government's doing and this is what we're doing. We estimate that we are going to be able to fulfill our projects within this time frame but um, at the moment it's still in that process of uh, analyzing and uh, collating the data on the ground and seeing what the needs is and uh, just make sure that we are able to uh, meet that goal uh, in the next year or six months and is there a is point where you get to that you can say you know everything is done or, 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 you know, that we've accomplished the goal. Do you get that as as an aid organization? Sometimes, yeah, you you do. There's, we, 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 the initial stages, yes, you get your, uh, when you, when you're responding to an emergency, you, you can say you've responded, but there's always so many people that are in need. Uh, even within a country, you, unfortunately, you can never get to everyone. And I think that's the sad thing that uh, you can bring millions and millions and millions of pounds and get aid as much as you want, but there's always gonna be someone that is left out, unfortunately. And it's not because of anyone's fault or, or no one wants to give. It's just the circumstances, the difficulty of the situation. Uh, it, it can be of that case. and sometimes that's the sad reality but of course you have your days where you you've seen projects that have been completed and uh, the, the the impact of your work for example our projects in Sri Lanka so they where we have if you go to our project in Sri Lanka you you would uh, we, when we go ourselves we're so amazed of what we have achieved in the last 10 years 20 years 30 years uh, uh, and the reason for that is because it is an integrated system. The entire uh, project, all of them are integrated. Uh, we have a school, the, those that go to that school, uh, they, they get, uh, once they finish, they go to a college, which is sponsored by us. They get uh, training in those colleges. From that, then they get uh, uh, for workshop. From workshops, they get the tools to go out and make money from those, from that money then, uh, what they buy is actually what we then use to feed those in those uh, uh, vulnerable areas. So it's an entire system, a cycle uh, that Muslim Aid has created in countries like Sri Lanka because of its long-term work. And that is something that we would like to achieve in every other country that we work in. And that is what we are working towards, long-term development projects where everything is integrated and we are able to support communities, villages and cities. And you, you brought it up before, which is, 
I have sort of a two-part question for you, how the public can help. And from what I understood, correct me if I'm wrong, is that donations to an organization that are not specific to a specific tragedy um, help, in other words, bolster that, that, that available budget you have that can be allocated quickly. Yeah. Um, of course, donating to a specific event cause is not bad, but having those sort of when times are, I guess, quiet, which is a good thing, those yeah. sort of regular, you know, donations. Um, are, is there any, you know, are there other things the public can do that would make uh, your work easier? Yeah, yeah, there's so many things you can do. You can uh, create your fundraising pages, organize events. Uh, you can volunteer with us. We, 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 you can come along if you want to, for example, yourself want to organize an event, call your friends do a, a talk show or, or live podcast, for example, and do a fundraising on the day. Uh, or, or if, you wanna, uh, if you're an influencer and you want to do a fundraising page, you can set up a fundraising page. There's so many different avenues or your society, a university, or you, you are an organization and you want to take part in, in challenges. We are able to uh, create these projects and programs and events for you and challenges for you, and then you can take part in them to raise money for whichever cause that you would like to so there's so many different ways and the most simplest way is just to go on our website muslimate.org and donate but there's so many different ways that you can get involved and, and on the flip side as as the aid organization if you could you know change one thing i i guess what would be that thing that would make your work easier you know it, it, i you know, I imagine logistics and it depends on where you are working with different governments. But, you know, is there one thing that you say, if 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 this were the case in a lot of these places, it would make X, Y, Z easier? That's a good question. I have to think about that. Yeah, it's just, uh, I was thinking. It's, this is, of course, there's a lot of things that, would make my life easier. I think communication is probably the biggest. I think just being able to communicate uh, uh, with different countries and uh, uh, with different organizations, um, because there's always, uh, unfortunately, there's a gap in uh, understanding or language or uh, this disconnect in communication. So uh, if, if we could, I don't know, somehow, streamline the communications throughout everyone, I think that would be, that would make everyone's life a lot more easier. Interesting. Yeah. You, you know, you, you brought up something that made me think, so, you know, I would imagine in an ideal world, there might be like a department of charity or aid organization or relief in every country that you would contact that, that would be the point of contact kind of. Does something like that exist? I mean, when like when you're talking to the Moroccan government, who who in the government do you you know how does that uh, yeah. look like that communication? So it's 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 different. It's it's uh, there's no there's no one organization. Uh, it's either and it's and it's different case by case by con uh, depending on country. There are certain countries you're able to work through the government. There are certain countries where you will need to find on the ground uh, partners uh, who can fulfill these uh, aid uh, projects or any project that you're implementing. So it really depends on the country and uh, every, every country is different. You may 
uh, certain countries you, you can just work with UN or Red Cross as an example or or you may want need to work on a, with the government uh, the government has projects and they, they and they help you with implementing and you can work through the government uh, so it's very different depending on the country and uh, where you are uh, implementing these projects so there I, I like to bring it up to the logistics again because I I want sort of I don't think uh, and I don't think I understand completely how difficult it's more than just going there and providing food right yeah. to, to do that takes so much behind the scenes that um, that you don't see that's not probably yeah, not glamorous it's, to... <laughs> it's not it's not the most uh, glamorous part of the work no but there is a lot of paperwork you're talking about um, due diligence risk assessments proposals uh, project lists uh, if you, you name it from even if you're spending a pound, we need to know how that pound's going to be spent. If you're working with a partner, we need to know who these partners are, what their credibilities are, uh, what work they've done beforehand, how do they implement their projects. So there is a lot of paperwork that goes behind the scenes in order to just implement, even though you may see us, yeah, we're there in one day or two days, but that 24-hour, that 48-hour before we got on the ground, no one has slept basically that's that's what uh, how how it works unfortunately in order to get in order to be able to respond to these areas as quickly as possible and you know i guess recently you've been traveling to many different places not just morocco um can you talk about some of the other places that you visited recently what's going on there just to catch us up yeah so um i actually didn't but my colleague he went to uh, turkey during the Turkey earthquake, and uh, um, he was describing it, it was, of course, uh, I would say 10, 20 times worse than what we saw in Morocco. In, in Turkey, it was literally cities completely destroyed. And uh, when I came back, we were just, it was interesting because we were just comparing our stories and our experiences. And uh, there's one thing that we, we, we both uh, said we wouldn't forget was actually the smell of uh unfortunately dead bodies and uh, uh um dead livestock uh there's a significant smell when you're on the ground that um literally you, you can't forget it afterwards and and it sticks in your head uh, that smell even when you think about it it kind of comes and we were just thinking about that and how that mentally impacts yourself and and just you know talking about how can we um, because we we visit quite a lot of countries, and, and and as aid workers, it can be very overwhelming when when you are seeing these things. So, how do you uh, work with that? How do you ensure that uh, you don't go insane and you're you're not going falling into depression? And and it, and it's just, I think uh, one thing that one of our colleagues who was with us this time, and an older colleague who. Uh, has been in the sector for a very long time and something that he really did during the trip that really helped was when we are on the ground, when we are helping, when we are uh, in the areas, it's full on, you know, you're in that mode. But once you get into that car and you're driving to the other location, you kind of switch off from it and, and you try to, you know, just talk about random things, anything. We were talking about some weird stuff, just like, you know, 
uh, brushes and toothpicks and just anything random just to get your mind off that because if once you're in that car and you're alone and you're just thinking about that continuously because you're going from place to place and you're seeing different stories and different lives and and that really impacts you as an aid worker so this is something that i would uh, you know recommend to all our colleagues in the sector when whenever you are on the ground like and when you are of course on the ground and you're in the work area of course you're focused but the minute you get a chance to just move away from it just completely shut off from it just for a couple of minutes an hour that will help you a lot in terms of just managing everything on the ground as well because you don't want to be overwhelmed at the end of the day we are responsible of the aid we are responsible for ensuring that these people get the help that they need so we need to ensure that we are taking care of ourselves in the best way form and you know uh if you as you were speaking it reminded me of a sort of of doctors i've heard stories where you know they're giving you grave news or something but the the doctor doesn't show much emotion and i've always thought you know that's to keep some sort of protection for themselves right not to get too emotionally involved now <clears throat> on the ground you know when you're speaking with people and helping people there must be a very fine line between being too distant or do you have to keep a distance you know emotionally um from seeing you know all of these you know bad things yeah. but also good things yeah it's it's very difficult you you of course you have to it's difficult to manage like you said it's a very fine line because you're dealing with real humans you're dealing with real emotions and and it's not just emotion of just a small trauma you're talking about severe uh, emotions of, of complete loss of uh, everything of households of, of family members and and just speaking to them and you know you know when when someone's lost something you just see their face it's it's a very different look it's it's very the eyes are a lot more dark right? and and it's and, and it's hard to describe but it's it's very different emotion that you get from them even if they are smiling even if they seem happy it's a very different form of happiness because they they inside them you can feel that sorrow that pain and and it's difficult to you know not feel some of it and you have to just maintain that and like i said it goes back to you know when you're there of course you're going to feel the emotions you're going to feel their pain the pain of the community but once you're out of that try to distance yourself from that pain and try to just distance yourself from what is going on just for a while just for a couple of minutes just for a uh, half an hour so you can mentally come back to your same spot and you can re re-energize yourself because you're going to be heading to another village in an hour or so so you need to be mentally prepared for that so it's just that you know mental preparation for yourself and you know to to round things up i i i think you know obviously the work you do is is very important um and it, it focuses a lot on tragedy but also you know the i see the good side of we see people flying around the world to help other people which i think is is good and something that we don't see a lot of in the news we, you know the, we 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 tend to focus on the negative right and uh, is there a story or or experience or just overall feeling you could share maybe something 
something positive or something unusual that happened. Uh, you mentioned the woman before and her resilience. Um, I'm sure you have lots of different stories uh, along those lines. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you one story of uh, actually one of my colleagues. He told me of what he experienced uh, a couple of days before I landed. And uh, he said that we were, uh, you know, going to the different villages, helping everyone out. And, and the people of Morocco are very hospitable. They always want to, you know, welcome you into their homes, even if they have nothing. And this is actually a story of that. It was actually a, a man who um, came to one of our colleagues and he said, oh, come, come, come eat with us. And uh, he was like, oh, it's okay. He goes, no, 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 come, come. And he's, and he's taken him. And then but once he got there, he realized that the man was not in a shelter. He did not have a home uh, or any sort of tent or anything. His home was actually under an olive tree. His family was staying under an olive tree and the olive tree was the shade. And, and the hospitality and, and, and just, you know, the, fear, the sheer joy of, you know, someone coming and helping. He was welcoming him, even though that was all he had. And he was like, look, even though the food that we gave them, he was like, oh, I'll cook and then we can eat. And my colleague's like, no, I, I can't do that. This is for you. But it's these stories that you see, like, uh, you know, they may have nothing, but they have, a heart of that had a half gold and it, and the heart is full of you know welcoming and and, and they are so open uh, in terms of just bringing you in and accepting you even if you were to give them one morsel they will be happy and they will, they will be like let's share this that is the stories that you see a lot when you go on the ground like the humble uh, experience that these people they may have nothing but they are able they will give you everything gladly just because he helped them a little. And and this is across the world, wherever we go, we, we hear these stories and we see these stories. Wow. Well, it's it's amazing. Um and a great way to, to sort of wrap wrap this up. I I I, I like I said, I, I think you know the work you do is very uh admirable, honorable, difficult. Um I again you know the paperwork stuff, I, I just think even those things which take so many hours it's so tedious probably um uh, just to get those things done um but you know uh, you see people that still have hope i guess which is kind of the takeaway you know they, they've lost so much but but still have something to offer um what are the best ways that people can get in touch uh, with muslim aid what, how can they help um, I'll leave links in the show notes, but what are some of the best yeah. ways they can get in touch? Yeah, so the best way is to um, go on our website, muslimate.org, and we have, if you want to donate, you can donate on any of our pages. We have different causes, or if you would like to get involved uh, by doing any voluntary work or want to organize your event, just go to our Get Involved page. We have the section where you can just fill out a form and someone from our team will be in touch with you or you can simply just call us and ask for uh, someone from our fundraising team uh, or someone from our income generation team. You can ask for myself, Fahar Ahmed, and we'll be happy to help you in wherever you are looking to do, whether it's an event, a challenge, etc. Whatever you wish to do, we, we are able to accommodate for it. I, you've given me some ideas and, and hopefully I can uh, contribute in the not too uh, distant future. Um, and hopefully our listeners as well uh, and viewers. Thank you so much for your time. Uh, I really enjoyed the conversation. I think it's it's just really illuminating. Again, like I said, you know, the Turkey earthquake seems like it was years ago, 
but it, you yeah. know and and so uh, there's still a lot of work that's that's being done um thank you again for your time i'll leave links to where everybody can find you in the in the show notes and um hopefully we'll we'll catch up again sometime uh you know and see how the the things have progressed definitely definitely no thank you for having us i think it was really insightful i think a lot of your viewers would enjoy our discussion and uh uh, thank you to everyone that has donated or will donate. And uh, thank you as well for having us. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Fox Nomad podcast. I will leave links to where you can find Muslim Aid down in the description box in the show notes below. If you're watching this on YouTube, make sure you hit the like and subscribe buttons. I'll have new videos for you every week and I'll see you in the next one.